This episode of Data Nonce is brought to you by IT Pro TV, an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. For a free seven-day trial and for a limited time, get 50% off a monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. Visit itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts50. You know how we make these rocket and spaceship analogies here on Datanauts, blasting around the infrastructure galaxy and so on? Well, there's one place that we haven't metaphorically blasted off to yet, and that is Planet Inbox. And today, we're going to change that. We're going to talk through securing your email infrastructure. Packetpushers.net, you can find this and all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the astonishing Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who is making a stand-up paddleboard from discarded AOL installation CDs, and our guest today is Jacob Evans. Jacob, welcome to the show, and if you would, introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience. Really appreciate being on the show. I'm a... Senior systems engineer, which pretty much just means I do ops and infrastructure or whatever's broken or break, whatever's not. I work for a company called Webstaurant Store. We're an e-commerce company delivering services for you know restaurant supplies and things like that. Cool. So you're on the show because basically you raised your hand and said, oh, I've been working on some stuff with DNS and email and security and so on. And I said, okay. The way I want to start the show is answering a pretty poignant question for a lot of people. Why would you even run your own email server in the SaaS age? I mean, email servers are a pain to manage. They just <laughs> – they suck, man. I've done a lot of that over the years with exchange systems that go way back in time, Novell group-wise servers. It's a storage problem. you got to have an internet gateway out there to get mail. You've got to punch a hole in your firewall, meaning you've just created a point of entry for people to now get on your network via that email server. Scaling it can suck, especially because that system is always in flight. (sighs) Chris, you've done some of this stuff too, right? And looked at some of the outbound services. The operative word there is used to. Don't (laughs) do it anymore. But yes, I mean, it went from something you had to do. There was no real external options that were price viable, especially at an SMB kind of mid-commercial. Back in the late 90s, you know, running Pine servers and stuff like that. To now where it feels like it's the complete opposite, right? Why would you run it on-prem, I suppose? And there's so many services that are out there, right? Everybody's using Gmail. A lot of people are using Gmail. It's certainly Outlook. And there's an article I found that listed off 10 of them, including some old names that are still out there as email service providers like Yahoo and AOL. And Lycos came out. It's like, wow, I haven't heard of them for years. Wow. Oh, the black I, dog, right? Yeah. yeah. So, Jacob, fill us in here. What are the good reasons that exist to run your own email infrastructure? Well, What it comes down to is it's your data. It's going to come down to your comfort level. There are still lots of us that run everything on-prem. If your customers are all-prem and you're still based out of a single building or single office or you've got that hardware, a lot of it is this is what the business wants. It's not necessarily whether a right or wrong because the management of the email system doesn't go away. Just because it's in the cloud does not mean that you don't have a lot of things to worry about that may or may not be there if you're on-prem. If you're sending an email from you to the guy next to you and you're in the cloud, that goes all the way up and all the way back. How you're securing that, that's, those are all good questions. Really, I think this then 
You're addressing data management. In other words, the information that is floating around your email system is intellectual property of your company. And so what you're suggesting there is if you're wanting to manage that data, then bringing it in-house gives you certain level of control that outsourcing it to the cloud does not? It does and it doesn't. And this is one of those where you throw on your consulting hat and you're like, well, it really depends. The, the I love problems, that hat. It's my favorite hat. It, it is the best hat it to always wear. Depends. And it always fits. <laughs> the thing that you run into is you see it in all different verticals. You can pay for anything. If you need a PCI compliant, HIPAA compliant, whatever compliant, Office 365 infrastructure, Microsoft will happily build that for you at a cost. If you're running it in-house, that's something that you need to do in-house. You need to have the staff that's aware of what those policies are and the technical people that are actually able to implement those policies. In most cases, if you are a new business, you will almost always, if not always, spin it up in the cloud. Google Apps, especially when you're in like the education space, nonprofit space, it makes no sense to put that on-prem. Yeah, you can get the software for free, but if you're on-prem, you got to pay for that hardware. Most people are maybe not so much on-prem, but in private cloud. So they're still paying someone to manage it. They have that confidence in a third party giving them the backups that they need, giving them that support that they need. If you are in Office 365 and you delete everything and you permanently delete it and you go back and say, hey, three weeks later or whatever, I need that. That's too bad. That's gone. The cloud is distributed. It is not revisional. It's not like going into GitHub and saying, oh, I need this code from some line I deleted some six months ago. It's still there. In email in the cloud, that's not going to be there anymore. What do you think about uh, leakage control? I know it Certain companies that have been very interested in you know, data leak prevention technology and scanning emails, outbound emails, is, was a big thing there. Is that something you feel would work better if you uh, own the infrastructure, or do you still get those services on cloud-based? You still get the services on cloud-based. Uh, you still have access to the way your mail flows, whether you're, you're prem or cloud. Speaking Office 365 Exchange, you still have transport connectors. You still can connect them to something like a Zix or a Symantec or McAfee your protection system. Now, obviously, if you run those systems on-prem, you're now sending your email into the cloud, back into your office, back out to the cloud, and kind of creating a bit of a management nightmare with that. But uh, <laughs> you, said, you said Zix server and brought me back to a – I have some memories there of a company I worked with that ran Zix and – and when Zix stopped working one day, we couldn't get information in and out of that gateway. It was kind of ugly because it wasn't ours. And we were reliant on Zix to fix the problem. But yep. couldn't you just email them and say, hey, my email, wait a minute. <laughs> yep, nope, yep, yep, you get yeah. it. So which actually is, that's really another good point, Jacob, is infrastructure control. I mean, if things break and it's in the cloud, you're just kind of like, well, hope they fix it soon. And if it's in-house, you've at least got some control over the situation, although I I guess it goes back to that it depends hat again. Yeah. Before I was at Webstorm Store, I was at a small MSP. And uh, when I started there, the first thing we started doing was cloud. Now, this is in 2009. There was no Office 365. There may have been Google Apps, but it wasn't popular. And we were running Exchange 2007, which was still pretty new at the time. Putting that into private cloud, you know, you run into all these 
issues where it's PTR records and you've got, okay, now I'm trying to run this one system for multiple people. What we have today wasn't really there then. A lot of the customers that went to that type of private cloud actually really like being in private cloud. They just don't want it to be their problem. It doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be Office 365's problem or something like that. And the point that I was getting to, and I'll circle back, is in my experience, everything that could be my problem, I wanted it to be my problem. Because if it was my problem, I don't have to tell my supervisor, oh, we're waiting on vendor. Oh, we're waiting on third party. And there's no, you know, that throat to choke, which they love to reference. It's my problem. They can see I'm working on it. They can see my team is working on it. They can see that it's something that is within my ability to fix, we hope, and then it'll be fixed. <laughs> well, it's, it's right, because, but then it's, a, it's confidence and pressure. As long as you as the engineer are comfortable enough with the infrastructure and have a pretty good idea of the sorts of things that can go wrong and know how to get through the troubleshooting exercise and resolve it, great. If you wilt under pressure, then sometimes outsourcing feels like a good answer. I'd like to make this someone else's issue. So you, can, you can shrug your shoulders and go, I'm calling as hard as I can to their tech support line and going, please fix this soon. But that's like no pressure. You just, you know, you're just sitting on hold, whatever. That's with any business. I mean, I don't know how many times I've run across a business where they're so big, they have somebody else pay their phone bill. Some people will make everything else someone else's problem. And some, some business, it comes down to the business. Some businesses want to make everything their problem. And it's at that level that they decide where it is. Yep, for a price and for a willingness to give up some level of control. It's always a trade-off, right? I tend to side with you. If it could be within my control or my team's control to deal with it, I would rather that than outsource it because I had more confidence that I or someone on my team was going to be able to resolve that issue more quickly than waiting for some technician who doesn't own the infrastructure and doesn't care about me or my infrastructure to step up to the plate and get it resolve quickly because they're just not gonna. You're just another ticket in the queue. And depending on the sort of outage that it is, you may be one of 50 or 100 or 1,000 or more people with a problem. They don't really care. They're going to get to it when they get to it. And you know it's fixed when it's fixed and whatever. Whereas if you own it, then you can really drive that problem resolution ahead. And I always valued the ability to have that control. So I, you know, going back to email, I guess that you – know, I'll buy that. I, I like that as a reason along with – privacy and retention policies and all of those things that give you a good reason to run your own uh, email server still. Yeah, but I think that can work both ways, right? I mean, I'm remembering my early days managing an exchange cluster and I didn't know diddly about it. I shouldn't have been running it, but I was the only admin, right? So I was the only choice. And having issues where email wasn't getting through since we're on the topic of email. And I mean, it was a simple thing. I didn't have reverse DNS set up for my domain, but I didn't know what that was. And I spent weeks tracking it down and hunting it down. And sure would have been nice to just put in a ticket. I'm sure someone would have saw the error message from the recipient or the, this, the company that we were trying to get to. I'm like, oh, dummy, click these few buttons and you'll be set. <laughs> but we're also talking about, I mean, Jacob, you said earlier, the smaller companies tend to go that way. And if I had the option in 2005 to outsource that, I certainly probably would have because I was one admin for several hundred people uh, of responsibility. But that's just one case where, yeah, if you're a larger shop and you've got the expertise in house, I would think to have someone that understands these things and has the time to carve out their day to understand these things. Sure. 
but as a one-man army, it was kind of tough. My question here, though, is, all right, if you start at that size and then the company grows, do you eventually transition from cloud to on-prem or do you go hybrid or what's the solution there? I think typically if you're in cloud, you pretty much stay cloud until you have that problem where Office 365 did an upgrade to your stack and didn't tell you and you were down for the day, you know, experience. It feels, it feels like a, you're showing your scars there, man. <laughs> <laughs> until there's a problem, there's not going to be a change. And that's human. It's not going to come down to the right or wrong answer. I mean, if you're at a tech refresh and it's ready to move, moving your data is, unless you're massive, you know, you guys are talking about the Amazon truck, they'll come pick up your email or whatever. The email comes in through the internet anyway. So for you to switch from prem to cloud or cloud to prem is flexible and it's going to come down to the needs of the of the customer so you're a very large business and you want to start giving more access to email to people that don't need active directory infrastructure desktop infrastructure or anything past a phone with email odds are they're going to be put in hybrid cloud whether it's actually just a subdomain or they'll actually do uh, you know split Inbox management, where half of your inboxes are local, half of your inboxes are 365 or Google Apps or whatever, and then your mobile office workers just have 0365, and your accounting and premise and C level people have Exchange. It's a mixed bag, and you can do any combination of either. When the RFCs were designed for email, it was designed to be active, active, and scalable. They did a very good job at writing standards. At the end of the day, it really comes down to the business need. So my first takeaway is it's good to understand the risks involved with public cloud offerings. You know, the points made because it's in the public cloud doesn't mean you just assuage all your concerns. You still have things to deal with. And uh, who do you email when your email is down about your email being down, right? So uh, Ethan, what are you thinking? really related to that. Everything's a trade-off, right? So uh, going back to Jacob's point of it depends and putting on the it depends hat, the favorite consultant hat of all, because that's true. There is no one right answer here. I know for me and my little company, I don't want to manage my own email. And therefore I give that responsibility off to Google. They do it for me. But most other companies I've been at did manage their own email for various reasons. And there's trade-offs both ways. And then there's solutions in the middle where some of it you deal with yourself and some of it you outsource to another person, all depending on what services you're going for. There isn't like there's any one right answer. And that's uh, that, whatever. Typical IT, right? It depends. Before we get back to our awesome Data Nuts discussion, a brief word about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV gives you a library of great content to help you prepare for IT certification. How much content, you ask? Over 2,000 hours, more than 125 hours of streaming live content every week. And you can stream those courses any way you can imagine. Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, through the web, of course. They are adding new courses to the library all the time. So, for example, some recent additions, ITIL, Managing the Lifecycle, another one here, uh, Microsoft, Hello for Business. And that's in addition to the Cisco and VMware and security-related courses that they have had right along. A really cool feature here, underneath the video player window, you've got a transcript feature that lets you follow from start to finish in physical text on the screen exactly what the instructor is saying, and you can also use that tool to jump to any part of the video that you like. 
So to access IT Pro TV, there is a monthly subscription price, and there's a no-hassle cancellation policy, by the way. You're not locked in for a long time if you decide you want to cancel. A couple of levels. There's a standard membership level that gives you access to all the live and recorded video content only. Now, if you level up to the premium level, you get access to all of the video content as well as the virtual labs and the Q&A forums. So at that level, the premium level, the cost is normally $85.70 a month or $8.57 per year. But actually, because you're listening to this show and you're awesome, you get a special offer for a free seven-day trial and then a limited time, 50% off monthly membership, which is good for the lifetime of your active subscription. Visit itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts50. That's itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts50. Okay, now we know that everyone needs to go to the cloud for all of their email. Appreciate you solidifying that, Jacob. There, there was no doubt. <laughs> Burn all of your on-prem servers now. <laughs> Let's move to something way easier and talk about something like IPv4 versus v6 support when it comes to email. Just kind of go there. I'll just leave it wide open for you. <laughs> so I love IPv6 support for email because it is still mostly greenfield. That being said and I haven't ranted about this yet, the tech giants are the ones that usually enforce policy. For example, Google Chrome and SHA-1. Google Chrome is the reason we were able to get rid of SHA-1. They started marking it as insecure, and everybody started jumping on the fence going, oh my goodness, my SSL is broken. I need to go reissue it. Well, the same thing with V6. With IPv6, they require PTR records, something that in the email space has been a hit or miss. And it's always come down to, if I can't email someone, it's probably on their end. And that's always been the mindset. It's never on my system. My system is perfect. My people are perfect. Everybody knows what they're doing. I didn't miss that PTR record. Or I didn't miss that SPF record. Or I didn't expand on my email infrastructure or outsource and didn't go into my DNS and change things. So absolutely IPv6. From a sender standpoint, yeah, that's pretty much what I've been talking about. On a receiver standpoint, more and more businesses are going to be limited to their IPv4 space. It's starting with residents, we're doing NAT 44, NAT 444, NAT 4444, oh, or stop v6, it. Or... Stop it. <laughs> Did we just hit a loop? I don't know what's um, going on there. For I, each I think, what? For... <laughs> yeah. While true, V4 active, do not. So basically, the big players, as usual, are going to push things forward. And yes. each year I hear, like, 6 is being advanced. And I know there's the, uh, I forget the, the website where it has the V6 global adoption numbers. Yes. And then you've got CDNs that are allowing you to kind of mask your website using V6, which I'm doing with uh, Cloudflare as an example. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable, but we love dragging our heels. Yes, as tech people. There's a lot of, there's a lot of technical debt that we just ain't going to pay. <laughs> and that's it's, one of them. It's new and scary. And V6, they, they're able to add all these policies that just aren't there yet. And because IPv4 was there and we started sending email, that was it. It didn't matter if you were dynamic IP, residential, business. If you had IP connectivity, you were sending email. And then we discover, oh, I have a spam problem. I need to start identifying who these people are. And the way that we identify who an IP address is, is that PTR record. And I guess this kind of takes us into what is full circle DNS. 
Before we get there, though, there's a point I want to clarify on IPv4 and IP versus IPv6. If you're building your own email infrastructure, and really that's what this was about. We're talking about all the things you need to run a properly secured email infrastructure of your own. IPv4 and IPv6, we're really talking about reachability here, or I, at least that's how I interpret it. You're probably going to run both you know, dual stacked on that server so that you could be reached either way. Is that you know fair to say? Yeah. So IPv4, IPv6 support, when you are building these infrastructure level systems, and by infrastructure, I'm talking email, DNS, and web, those three systems need to be dual stacked. Your access layer, all the other stuff, you can do one or the other, and hopefully you still provide V4 access some way. But when it comes to, I'll call them registered IPs, on your registered IP space for web, DNS, and email, you need to be able to support both. That's today not as important. Tomorrow, hopefully more important. I can tell you that when I switched the main couple of companies that I did this for to support V6, and we support V6 on our outbound, where I am now, the connectivity to sending email to Google, you know, cut in half because I was able to access all the new stuff over the new network, which is usually new routers and things that support V6. So it's faster, not necessarily because the protocol is faster and not necessarily because the path is direct, but because you're typically on new gear. Okay. So reachability is one aspect of your email infrastructure. And uh, now now let's get into security. The details about, well, authentic- let's start with authentication, you know, proving you are who you say you are as you're trying to deliver mail. And we've been talking about PTR records. And so a lot of this has to do with the domain name system and records that you host within your domain, your zone that's living in DNS. Uh, PTR records is kind of the most basic one. Can you explain what they are and the role that they play in email delivery? Yeah. So when we're talking email authentication, and to clarify, email authentication of server-to-server communication, verifying your identity, not in the sense of a username and password, but email authentication being, so your PTR record is a way to take your typically subscriber ISP-provided IP address and map it to a DNS. We map it to a DNS because not only is there a contact and information or responsibility endpoint, but also that the ISP has validated in a way that they manage those PTR records, that your DNS or your domain name is allowed to do whatever it is it needs to do. That identity is locked in there. Yeah, you're matching um, the, the record with an IP address, which makes it a little bit harder for someone to spoof that, which is the big challenge in mail where spam is sent because SMTP, Simple Mail Transport Protocol, which is what's used to send mail between servers, has no sort of authentication mechanism. Anybody can claim to be anybody from any source and send a message. And that that MTA, that uh, running SMTP, is going to take that message and accept it as is and send it along. And so it's it's incumbent on – you need something other than SMTP to help you prove the – you know, identity of that message. You know, who's the send? Who's sending this to me? You know, is this a valid sender? Should I trust them? You know, is this coming from a valid source domain? And, and right, PTR records that matching that host name to an IP with a reverse record, that uh, pointer record, is is the most uh, straightforward way to to start with that. But it really hasn't been enough. I mean, uh, there's all these other records that we're going to talk through here. But there's sender policy framework, domain keys identified mail. 
domain-based message authentication, reporting and conformance, you know, and more beyond that. So let's talk through some of these other ones that really kind of advance the art of PTR. Why don't we start with sender policy framework? To recap, PTR is literally just going to be for that one domain. So to get past that, we then need to use a sender policy framework. And that's where you as the sending domain are going to list pretty much like an ACL the IP addresses or the A records or MX records or whatever the source is that you say, okay, this is my sending source. I'm either going to defer that to a third party with something like an include record that my provider's going to give me. They'll say, okay, you want me to send your email. You need to, on your domain, authenticate that I am allowed to send email on your behalf. And the first part of that is allowing those IP addresses to send from your domain. And that's still just tying down that association with these, this is my sending scope, this is my outbound IP address range, and this is my domain. And again, that third party that you're talking about, you know, whoever it is that you've enlisted to send mail for you, it may be not your own SMTP gateway, but you're relaying it through someone or you've outsourced that function completely to, uh, to that third party because you're using cloud services, that kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, You have to be careful with that. There are some limits, just as there are with any system. You can't list more than 10 DNS records. Because it's email, we assume, you know, we want that to be fast, 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 fast. It's got to do this validation check quickly, and it can't follow 11, 12, 13 DNS records. So you need to be careful. You also, as a company, should decide, okay, we're going to go with this provider for our inbox, you know, Gmail, Google Apps. And then we're going to go with this provider for our newsletter. And that should be it. You shouldn't have three, four, five newsletter systems because unless they all use the same backend, you're going to run out of options for your PTR record. And when you're authenticating over 100,000 IP addresses, is there really a point to having an SPF record anymore? <laughs> right. So, okay, you're making the point here that you really want to – Narrow the scope of the number of possible senders for your domain or it gets to be a little silly. Yes. And again, just just another point I wanted to hone in on. You were mentioning speed. In other words, there's an SMTP server that's receiving a message from you and and needs to make a decision about whether to accept or deliver or not deliver this message. And if doing an SPF check is part of that, you want that to be as quick as possible. Is that what I was understanding? Yes, absolutely. So just in the beginning conversations as as the server, I'm going to say, who's your IP? Okay. Who's your A record? Okay. That goes back to your IP. Good. Do you have an SPF record? Yes. Who's in that SPF record? Okay. Going to get all those IPs. Are you in one of these? Yes. Match. Good. Next step. And that brings us to the DKIM keys. It's going to pull up the DKIM keys. And then it's going to pull up the DeMarc record. And then it's going to Say, okay, you have passed all these tests, and I've now completely hammered DNS for the last three seconds. Move along. How enforceable are those things? Like the, the sender policy framework, SPF, <laughs> is, that, is that a requirement? Because like, it feels like all these things are sort of like shoulds but not musts. Exactly. I mean, there is an RFC for it, right? There. <laughs> so once again, with any system that doesn't have a reporting system, you set and forget and then there's a change, and it's on that receiver's and responsibility to go in and say, hey, I did not get an email from Ethan. 
he just created a new exchange server. He didn't put in his SPF record, but I don't care. I need that email from Ethan. So a lot of inboxes are not respecting those SPF policies. An SPF policy, you have the option to say, you know, at the end of every record, there should be that plus all, minus all, squiggly all, question mark all, which a couple of those, if you see, essentially disable SPF altogether. Question mark, the plus, both pretty much just say either authenticate all or I have no idea what I'm doing, ignore my record. Minus all is really the only record that you should have out there. Um, that says, if my IP address is not on this list, reject the message back. But there's no, there's no reporting from you as the person that set that up. There's the client. The client sends you an email, and then they get a rejection that says you're not allowed to send this email. Yeah, the reporting is the help desk That's ticket it. where someone's like, I didn't get that email that, that my customer sent me. Exactly. There's because no, you didn't get no the information because you blocked it you know, or somebody <laughs> blocked it. Yeah. The squiggles and the reply all and all that you were talking about, you, you were describing the policy embedded in the SPF record? Yes. So in the record, at the end of the record, you always have a policy that says, if you didn't match anything that was in my includes, in my IP blocks, in my IPv6 blocks, in my DNS lookups, their final action is deny any any, if it was an ACL, or minus all. Uh, I got it. Okay. That's your, since you're a network guy, think of it as an ACL. Minus all. Any, any for life. Right. Woo! <laughs> and your plus all is, you know, disable firewall. So you also mentioned uh, DKIM records, the domain key identified mail. Can you describe? It sounds like it's after the SPF check. Feels like we're just continuing to try to reduce surface area and crush the hopes and dreams of anyone trying to send me mail. Exactly. Yeah, mail is bad. Just make a Slack channel for everybody. <laughs> just throw up in my mouth. That's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Your sender policy framework, that works at your, your introductory phase. In SMTP, you have your hello, I am, this is from, this is to, just like you would on a letter. In the from message, you know, when you say mail from, you say this is the domain, and that's where the SPF checks against the, the introductory. Once that passes, you're allowed to send recipient to, then make sure that that user is a local user. That takes you through the main headers. And then you can start sending data. When you go to send data, you would also include a, a SHA sum or a, a checksum of all the contents of the headers included in that message. And that's your DKIM. So once you're actually sending the message, it's going to include, and that's determined up to you, a hash of either just the headers, the headers in the body, the entire message, Typically, you would not include things like your received by records, which are a chain of each email server that it hit before it got to you, because those change for every provider. So typically, it's the, the from, the to, the original message. And that prevents things like content manipulation, redirecting emails. It's commonly broken in things like mail lists. So if you send through a mail list and you have strict policies to say, Reject anything that DKIM fails. If you use a mail list, that will always break. If you use Yahoo inbox forwarding, that will always break. Because those things are, are they're messing with various fields in that email, thus such that this, the computed signature that's in the SMTP header isn't going to match anymore. Correct. Kind of like with networking and IPsec, if you have a man in the middle of the attack, your checksum validation is going to fail. And so you're going to reject that message because you presume someone's been screwing with the payload. Okay. So in other words, 
You were mentioning mailing list, forwarding via Yahoo, things that are going to break DKIM. Can you adjust the policy so that it's less strict? I mean, how do you handle that situation where there are those exceptions? Typically, you do something relaxed. Um, and typically, this is where you end up with the broken internet whitelist. So because Yahoo does that, most people take into account that that's going to happen. So if you are at Gmail, you're not taking these these records and these policies as law you're taking them as suggestions and taking that into your into account for your spam filtering system to say okay well yeah this was broken but it came from yahoo so it's probably his old email account i'll have to either give that to him if he marks it as a spam i'll know for next time kind of thing now, will a DKIM signature make it all the way to my inbox where if I were to look at the full body of the message and look at all the headers, it would be there? Or does it get stripped off on its way through the MTA? All the way through the inbox. So if you, uh, in Outlook, enable message options and flip on the headers or Google Inbox does a great job with this. Now, if you show original, it'll actually at the very top give you all the authentication results, whether it's TLS, DKIM pass, SPF pass, uh, DMARC pass, source IP address. I mean, it. it they do a really good job. It gives you everything that passed and mm-hmm. all of that being metadata that helps them make a spam, no spam decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. DKIM's another one of these RFCs. This is 6376, fully ratified IETF standard. Do most email domains actually implement DKIM? Because it sounds like there's a lot of overhead to it. There is a not a lot of overhead. AS and I processors can compute that checksum very quickly. But it's not something that it's been out in the wild, but it hasn't been something that everyone uses. And if, for example, you use something like Office 365, it's something that you have to take an extra step to enable. But if you want to have DeMarc, you must have SPF and DKIM. So last time I did it, there was a, a PowerShell command that you could run on your Office 365 tenants to enable that. But it's one of those things, it's, it comes down to, to you as the email administrator What's important to you? How much do you care about your data, your branding, your domain? You know, I've had customers come over. They've had no SPF record. They've had no DKIM records. And China is just sending so much spam as their domain because it's a nice domain. And there's nothing they've ever done about it. Now we flip on to Mark and, my goodness, it's millions and millions of messages being rejected. And I have that visibility. Well, we talked about PTRs, SPF, DCAM, and now you've mentioned DMARC. I guess that's next then. Tell us yes. what uh, – is it DMARC, DMARC? I don't know what – it's D-M-A-R-C is the acronym, Domain-Based Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance Records. Because, yeah, we need another friggin' acronym in the Isn't world. Isn't that your rapper name too? Aren't you DMARC when you rap? I thought it was that's that. right. <laughs> well, I have no idea how you say it, but I've always called it DMARC. Yeah, it is your it is your wrapper. It is it does not do anything specifically. It simply enforces the policies that already exist. So you don't have to generate a you know, checksum additionally. Um, it's going to use SPF and DKIM, and it's going to layer on top a control plane that says, okay, if SPF failed, that's okay, or that's not okay. If DKIM failed, that's okay or not okay, and then take an action whether that's do nothing, quarantine, or reject a message. So it gives you another layer of control, giving you, as the domain owner, the ability to 
tell other people receiving message that purports to be from your domain how to handle the situation when SPF or DCAM or both fail. So you've got this, it sounds like a policy language. It is. And then the best part of it is that you actually have the option to put in a report URI. So you can send these reports to an email address, to a third-party service, to your parser and actually get this information. So you can stand this up and find out, oh, we accidentally broke our SPF record because we added a second text record and that disabled the lookup because it's found duplicate conflicting records. We need to go fix that. I know that because none of my email is on SPF anymore. It's, it's that visibility that was preventing SPF and DCAM from really taking off. And because it's built on top of the, the standards that, that really do work, we're actually able to see a huge bump in people using SPF, DCAM, and DMARC. Okay, so we talk about reachability and then authentication, and there's a lot that goes into authenticating that someone coming from a specific domain is who they say they are. But what about privacy? What about like you know encrypting messages and so on? Is that still interesting in the email world? It is. It's getting more and more traction, and I think that's mostly because HTTPS is also getting more and more traction. Google has started marking things as sent insecurely in your inbox. But with as large of an email system that's out there, I mean, you could be communicating, say, perfect world, two people have prem or two people have cloud. And they know, okay, if I send from Google Apps to Google Apps, it's all within that local network. It's TLS end to end. If I send an email from one cloud to another, they're probably TLS end to end. If I send from someone that I don't know and I don't know anything about their infrastructure, it could be TLS end-to-end. It could be something like where you have Cloudflare with an HTTP backend. It's SSL at the front, but it's plain text over the wire after that. You don't really have that visibility. Yes, they should have that in their headers, and you would know if that was taken out if they did the DKIM from their Outlook inbox when they hit send. But that's not where DKIM happens. It happens on an MTA. It happens at any MTA they decide. So... Yes, TLS is extremely important. It's that security is extremely important. It should be something that everyone looks at. The number of times I've seen SSL v3 enabled on SMTP, I cannot count, and I prefer not to share. Yeah, it's disabled on IIS, but is it disabled on your SMTP? Is it disabled on the whole system? I mean, how long has SSL v3 been deemed insecure? <laughs> like since it was invented, right? Oh, man, we're going a little long in this section, but this is interesting stuff. So one final question here. If you own an email domain, you're kind of responsible for bad things that may happen in your name, so to speak. So do you have a a feedback loop? Do you still work on real-time black hole lists and deal with those folks that maintain those things? I mean, back in the day, I spent a lot of time with RBLs and dealing with spam and, and so on and getting off of the black hole list of something bad had happened to, say, a customer of mine. And we fixed the problem and then said, okay, we fixed the problem. Please take us off the list. Is that still a thing? It is still a thing. Feedback loops are still very important if you're doing bulk mail. And the biggest thing I can tell you, if you're going to do bulk mail and you're going to do it yourself, make sure that you tell everyone that you are sending bulk mail. Do not pretend to be something you're not. If it's an invoice, it's an invoice. If it's a spam or if it's your advertisement, it's an advertisement. Mark them appropriately. There are headers from every provider that tell you 
if it's bulk, mark it as precedence bulk. Those are just things that you need to be responsible for. If you're uh, like a small business, odds are you don't need a feedback loop. You'll probably get blacklisted if you're one of your marketing people decides to do a blind carbon copy blast instead of using that MailChimp system that you set up for them. It's all about establishing a level of trust with the other providers. Cisco has an excellent site, Senderbase. They will tell you whether or not you look good generally. That does not mean that you didn't send an email blast to a whole bunch of people that marked you as spam and sent that over to you know, Spam House. I think Senderbase came from their iron port acquisition. I could be wrong on that, but yeah. Nope, that's absolutely. Cisco's making a lot of acquisitions in the security space with OpenDNS recently as well. That's a good source. If you're not comfortable with anything we talked about, yeah, go to cloud, get a consultant. If these are things that are important to you, the going to cloud does not invalidate SPF decommit to mark. That is your domain. That is still under your responsibility tab. Just because you're at Office 365 doesn't mean you can just not worry about it. And so, so if I go to one of those big providers is handling email for me, I'm assuming if I ask them, I need to set up these records, SPF and so on, they can help me with that? Absolutely. What you typically do is you'll either run a C name to their, their DKIM records so that they can rotate it. And every provider out there has a step-by-step guide on how to set that up. If they don't, you might want to shop another provider. The whole underpinning of that discussion for me was that, wow, DNS is incredibly important. It's not like we don't know this. You know, anyone that's an internet infrastructure engineer understands just how critical DNS is. But it's one of those things that until it breaks, you don't think about it very much. Yes, it does hostname resolution and off you go. Well, it does more than hostname resolution. It's a repository for many other types of records as well. We really highlighted that here. And the key role that DNS and the informational TXT records of various types play in helping control the flood of spam and controlling people flooding uh, other people with messages that purport to be coming from your domain, helping to prevent that. So again, wow, DNS is a hugely important for a lot of things. But uh, but yeah, email too, not just for delivery, but other stuff. What grabbed your attention, Mr. Wall? I was just thinking when I was managing email full time, you know, over a decade ago, I thought it was a lot of work having to set up, you know, pointer records and whitelists. And I spent an inordinate amount of time fighting spam. But now I'm thinking, man, the world of spam has created so much crud that has to be placed in the path of sending email to another person. You know, all these things that we talked about just to get little bits of data from one side to the next. No wonder chat-based communications become so popular. I want to conclude the show talking a bit about DNS. We've been talking about DNS records. And so it kind of occurs to me that DNS and maintaining DNS for our domains to support secure email is really important. So one thing that popped in my head, Jacob, is do these records like SPF and DKIM and so on, do they have expiration dates where they expire? Kind of like, you know, a certificate expires after a while. It's no longer considered authoritative because the date's gone by. Do we have any concerns like that for any of these DNS records? It's DNS, obviously, no. The, the records will always be there. But as far as the DKIM records, if you are maintaining that your, yourself, you should rotate those keys just like any other security practice. And then creating these records, I mean, I looked online as I was researching for this show, a lot of these records are 
funky long hash strings and weird things? I mean, are you creating those by hand? Is there something generating them for you where it's more an automated process? Yeah, with Dkim, it's a standard public-private key. You take a private key, you sign it, and that's you have your public key pair in DNS and your private key pair on the server or the third-party server or whatever it is. They'll publish that public record. And then with the private key, you'll do a, a signing, and with the public key, they can verify. So it's something that, yeah, you'll manage when you first set it up. The more and more you get into you know, DevOps and automation and things like that, You'll either write a script for it, and it'll be just be something that you do, you know, once a year or every once in a while. The one thing you do want to take into consideration is that there's a something called a sector, and that's your either your third party or your your premise all within that structure. So you want to make sure you maintain the old record and don't just rip and replace because anything that's out there that you're currently sending with the old key wouldn't be valid. And same thing with the new key. So there are obviously considerations. You don't just... SPF, yeah, you have to rip and replace. Or you can append and then remove as you add and remove servers. But with uh, the DKIM record, you want to make sure that you run them both in parallel for usually a couple of weeks and then uh, trim out the old stuff. Another point that I don't know if we made it clear as we were talking through them, but SPF and, and DKIM records, these are actually text records. So if you were to look at the DNS record type, you've got... A records, quad A records, PTR records. These are TXT records, which is a a boring old format that's been around as a standard DNS record type for a long time. So I'm assuming that means you don't need to have some magical version of DNS to support the uh, email security related records, correct? Correct. Um, yeah, as long as you're on like bind four or whenever they added that, that's all you need. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, <laughs> pretty old school. Really old school, yeah. As long as the TXT is there. Some people have put in SPF records, and they might add some validation for you, but TXT is all you need. That's that's what the standard's built on. What about considerations for running the DNS infrastructure? You know, should that be something on-prem because you talk about control and being able to troubleshoot and kind of own it, or outsource because they're way better at you know DDoS and things like that than you are? <laughs> uh, I don't know about way better at DDoS, but it's it's going to be the same thing. Uh, your SMTP server, your DNS server, those are all going to be considerations that the business is going to decide on. Uh, in most cases, DNS is a standard. If you run a couple in-house, you should probably run a couple in cloud or in a third-party VPS. Or This is probably the lifeblood of your business. If DNS doesn't work, nobody's calling up your IP address. So if you have the infrastructure, your infrastructure should be as resilient as the, the business needs. Most people are using you know, AWS, Dyn, What's My, you know, all, all the different types. The key is to make sure that they are consistent and that they are actually you know, managed centrally. Uh, some people use APIs. Some people use the built-in TSIG and DNS record kind of thing. And you'll kind of notice how much working in Exchange has moved my experience in different ways across the different systems. <laughs> Considering how key DNS is for email security here, is there is there some kind of extra security that you can place on the zone itself to make sure that all the interesting TXT records don't get hijacked or spoofed or altered in some way? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously what the, the whole DNSSEC project is all about. It, just like SSL, you're establishing a trust point. Typically, the trust point is literally dot, 
and that trust point is distributed through your operating system. Your operating system uses that to follow the chain down to make sure that those records aren't modified. That's not a new system, but it is certainly uh, newly being distributed and uh, until people get the kinks out. And I think this is going to be another one of those things where they need to add like a DeMarc wrapper so that the maintainers know that their stuff is broken because we are not always consumers of our own products. Uh, and that's something that is always going to be up in the wind. Well, Jacob, thanks a lot for coming on the show, talking to us about securing email, making a case for building your own email infrastructure and saving the world from spam, at least to some degree. I mean, I know spam's still a huge thing, but at least people aren't forging your own domains if you uh, if you do it right. So that's great stuff. Now, are you uh, social, Jacob? Can people follow you on maybe on Twitter or do you have a blog, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a pretend blog. Like you guys have said, you should probably run your blog in somebody else's infrastructure. Mine is my lab. So it's usually up uh, and it's recently HSTS, but uh, jacobdevans.com. And then obviously in conflict, Jake D. Evans on the Twitter. Jake D. Okay. jacobdevans.com. <laughs> And then uh, Jake D. Evans on Twitter. Got it. Sounds good. And uh, that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can share your darkest inbox secrets with Ethan. That's me, at EC Banks on Twitter. And I invite you to subscribe to my blog, EthanCBanks.com. You can get a piece of the wall at Chris Wall on Twitter or via his blog, WallNetwork.com. For more of our Data Knots shows about infrastructure engineering, row your infrastructure paddleboard to PacketPushers.net. You'll find the data knots carrying on about all things infrastructure, cloud, and data center, security, storage, automation, development, virtualization, open source, scripting, certification, and more. And hey, we're looking for interesting vendors with cool products to come on the show as sponsors. So send an email to sponsors at packetpushers.net. That's you, and you can find out more. Until then, may your server lights blink, your DNS records prove you are who you say you are, and your cables be cleanly managed. Insert on the end there, man. I didn't see that. <laughs> That's pretty. I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs>